Today, we bring you audio from the Embracing Autism IRL video podcast series. Welcome to Embracing Autism IRL. In this video series, we interview guests from a variety of backgrounds who are all linked together through autism. From advocates to therapists to parents and autistic adults, this series will take a well-rounded approach to sharing diverse perspectives on autism spectrum disorder. Our guests are encouraged to speak freely and be their authentic selves when discussing controversial yet critical topics in the autism community. If you'd like to watch the full unedited video of our interview-style podcast spinoff, Embracing Autism IRL, please subscribe to our YouTube channel of the same name and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Autism Wish. New episodes release monthly. Without further ado, let's meet Dr. Kristen Wagner. Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Embracing Autism IRL. Today, I have a very special guest with me, Dr. Kristen Wagner. Dr. Wagner is a neurodivergent author of the Brody the Lion Children's Book Series. She holds a master's degree in early childhood special education and a PhD in clinical psychology. Kristen has worked with young children and special needs for over 30 years, working as a birth to three teacher, a special education teacher, and a clinical psychologist. (laughs) Hi, Kristen. How are you? I'm doing well now I feel old, but I'm doing very well. Thank you, Leah, for having me. No problem. And don't worry, I won't tell you my age. (laughs) (laughs) So could you tell me, um, other than your your professional background, can you tell me a little bit more about yourself, your hobbies, maybe your favorite color, just something unique to you? Sure. Well, um, blue. So I wear a lot of blue. About myself, boy, we would need just the entire podcast for uh, me to talk about that. There's so much about me that just intertwines with who I am, what I do. I am my job and not because I need to be doing something else. I don't have a lot of hobbies because I love what I do. And my special interest has always been, ever since I was a little kid, has always been whatever work I am in. I love to work. so, (laughs) So I really, I work a lot and I am passionate about whatever it is that I am doing and I put everything I have into it. Other than my work, I do love to swim, so there's that. But really, it is right now and for the last 30 years, it has really been autism that has fueled my passion in, in different ways in and out. Why did you decide to pursue special education and clinical psychology? Was it directly related to this relationship to autism or did something else bring you on that path? Oh, goodness, no. I grew up in the 60s and 70s and uh, an intelligent, gifted child was, well, you, you weren't labeled gifted and you weren't labeled any kind of special ed unless you were sent to a segregated school or, or institutionalized. So there wasn't any autism or ADHD or anything like that when I was growing up. So I was just thought to be oppositional, defiant. You know, I, I was punished a lot. I mean, the first time I was kicked out of a classroom, I was in kindergarten. So my whole life, I tried to fit in and do what was right because I was a serious rule follower. But long story short, I went to college to pursue chemical engineering and was studying chemical engineering. And I didn't fit in there. I didn't fit in with nerds. I didn't fit in with, with the pot. I just didn't fit in anywhere. And I, I left that because I was volunteering with children had cystic fibrosis. And it just dawned on me that I was so much happier working with children than I was working in the lab. And so even though 
everyone was shocked and it's like, how can you do that? You're so smart. How can you possibly, you know, want to alter, <laughs> you know, your trajectory? I did. And so actually my bachelor's degree is in vocational rehabilitation. And I worked for five years as a case manager for a welfare reform program. And then that's when I decided to go back and get my master's in special ed and started working in special ed. And even back then, I mean, that would have been in the early, early 90s. I didn't know anything about autism. We didn't learn about autism, even in a master's program. And so I was teaching and there was a five-year-old child who had autism. And I can remember him playing my sensory table and picking up the worms. And there just wasn't an, an instant connection. And it's like, I got him, he got me, you know, we got each other. And it just made sense. And he would come back to school every single day after day. I mean, he would know more things than what I had taught him. And so I found out he was doing this ABA. Again, I didn't know. I mean, I'm, at this point, I'm 28. I still didn't know anything about autism or ABA. So I started taking classes, actually then left teaching to do some ABA work. But the ABA wasn't quite right either because they weren't doing it right. And we can, you know, talk uh -huh. about that later and, and all about <laughs> the ABAs. The long story gets, gets, gets quite long because I actually was fired from my ABA job because, as my boss told me, I was a square peg. And no matter how much she squished or squeezed or pushed me, she could never get me to fit into a round hole. And so I had already at that point been pursuing my PhD. So I finished my PhD and opened my own company. And 20 years later, here we are. I think that <laughs> comment that you made was really interesting about squishing you into that oh. peg, because that is really what the debate over ABA is mostly about. So it's interesting that they would even say that to the people who are conducting or performing the ABA, because that's kind of like the debate of what's happening with the kiddos. That's what I was, because I refused to comply. Even though I'm an extreme rule follower, I don't do something ethically or morally that is wrong. And so even if the rule <laughs> supersedes, so my boss is wanting me to, you know, tell kids they can't stim and make them do hand over hand and force them, you know, enforce is a, a strong word because we never mm -hmm. force, but all of those things that are the bad ABA. And I wouldn't do that because you didn't need to do that. And I knew that I wouldn't use any extrinsic reinforcers. And so, I mean, I, I worked for a company that had the little tackle boxes with the candies in it and stuff. And you don't need any of that. You know, none of that, that artificial you know, reinforcement, it, it, you would never need it. I mean, I've never used it in, you know, 20 years of, of ABA practice because you don't need it. And so they, they hired a, a BCBA, a new BCBA that was, you know, young and she wanted all of her clinicians to, you know, tow the rope and, and I just wouldn't do it. So would you say that your own neurodivergence impacted your view of autism and ABA? Because it seems like you were intuitively in line with the kiddos. <laughs> it's kind of the opposite. ABA and autism taught me about my neurodivergence. Yeah. Do you mind sharing how that happened? Yeah, I mean, I knew I had ADHD that I got diagnosed early on in college, because at that point, then you're, you know, th they had figured a few more things out. But still, the view of autism at that point was a Rain Man. I mean, you think when did Rain Man come out? I mean, that that still was was the view. I don't have an official diagnosis of autism, because as a clinical psychologist, the only way 
you can give an actual diagnosis of autism is if the autism was present in the first three years. And my mom can't remember any of my first three <laughs> years of life. So there's no way I can confirm it. There's movies of me stimming. So, I mean, I could kind of do, you know, and, and I have lots of vivid memories of some very large meltdowns. And like we said, <laughs> lots. I'm sure that if I was a child today, I would I would be diagnosed um, autistic. But the more children I meet, the more children I work with, the more families I work with, the more I learn about autism. And of course, with social media and you get to talk to other autistic adults and you you hear the experiences, it's like, oh, yeah, <laughs> oh, sure am. <laughs> <laughs> so I want to just ask you really quickly about that. We all talk about in the autism community about how inaccessible it is for an autism diagnosis if you don't get one as a child. Do you know if anything's being worked on in that area in in terms of adults who are missed as children? Or is there any alternatives for people like who are in your situation? Or are you just kind of like out of luck? I don't see it as out of luck because there's, for me, there's there's no point in being diagnosed. Number one, even if I had an official diagnosis, it is not at this point in my life clinically impacting anything that is distressing. I mean, I have figured out how to live in a neurotypical world when I need to. And so there is nothing that a diagnosis would do to benefit my life. For somebody that would need a diagnosis, I think you can get a diagnosis. And, and diagnosis from whether we're talking about a 12-month-old or we're talking about a 50-year-old, it's just being able to access that. And it is just, in my opinion, I think it's easier for an adult to get a diagnosis than for a 12-month-old or an 18-month-old because the 50 year old, they're not going to say, oh, well, wait and see. And oh, they'll grow out of it. And oh, you can't be autistic because you looked at me and you smiled. And so I mean, every single day, I get calls from parents who have four year olds, five year olds, six year olds and older who knew their child was autistic. And everyone around them, the birth to three teacher, the pediatrician, the speech person, their family all said, wait and see, or they can't be autistic because, and the parent is devastated because now their child is five and they've missed this opportunity for early intervention. And not that things can't be done because you can do things as an adult. And so it's never too late. It's knowing where to get those resources. And the key in doing that is not going to the big clinics because the big clinics are going to follow things very rigidly and the wait lists are huge and long. You have to go out and dig and dig and dig and find that little provider like me who is, I mean, I don't ever have a waiting list. I mean, we get people in within a week, two weeks maximum. You call me today, you're going to be in to see me within a week or two because ethically, morally, you should never have to wait for services. And so while it might be not that quick everywhere, I also, I live in a very, very, very rural area. My closest neighbor here is over a mile away. You know, my closest city has 300 people and that's 10 miles away. I work in a little bigger city. But if we can do that here, there are those providers in every city across at least United States. I can't talk for, you know, other countries, but you just have to keep fighting for it. That's really interesting. I know that I've heard kind of like mixed stories in terms of when kids have been able to get their diagnosis. There are those parents that are waiting till like five or six for the reason that you said that they said that we can't tell yet, which to me is really interesting because <laughs> no. my kids, my youngest one was diagnosed at 20 months old. And then because she was yeah. diagnosed, my other one was looked at as well. And she got a preliminary diagnosis at 12 months old that couldn't be confirmed until 
until she hit 18 months. And then she was able to get a diagnosis. Mm -hmm. So like, I'm surprised and shocked that people have to wait till six years old when you can get it at like 18 months. Yeah, they don't know. You can get it at 12 months. We can do the ADOS at 12 months old and you can get not even provisional. You can give a diagnosis. A lot of our siblings that have autism, you can see it at six months. You can see it at nine. When when you think of some of the, the social development that happens between that six and nine month old level at nine months there is a phenomenal psychological study that was done. It's called a virtual cliff. They put a baby on a clear table, plexiglass table, and the table has what appears to the baby to have a drop off. So half of the table, I mean, it's firm all the way. The baby's mm-hmm. not, not in any yeah. danger ever, but the table drops off and then goes to the floor while the plexiglass stays on top and the mom stays at the other side. So when the baby reaches this part that visually looks like it's a cliff, looks like they're going to drop off. If the mom who's standing at the other side of this table smiles at the baby and nods, no words, just smiles and nods, the baby will continue to, to proceed. If the parent parent shakes their head, has that little bit of fear, the baby stops and goes back. Wow. At nine months old, an autistic child doesn't do that because an autistic child does not look, and it's not about eye contact, has nothing to do with eye contact. It has to do with understanding social reciprocity and understanding communication. That's what autism is, is this social communicative. And the eye contact thing gets so muddled and so mixed up because it has nothing to do with actually looking at somebody in the eye. It has to do with understanding that we use our face and our expression. So that doesn't mean an autistic person doesn't. They just use them differently. And they also have to be taught, which is why then again, it gets harder as you get older, because after you are three years old, you're going to learn those social rules. And so then when I see a six-year-old, I can't tell if they are doing the eye contact, making the eye contact, making the gestures because they've been taught to do them or they taught themselves and they're masking or are they doing it because it is natural to them? And that's where it gets really tricky. I mean, it's very Mm -hmm. hard to diagnose an older child because it's so specific with some of those innate human behaviors that those of us that are neurodivergent, we're we're just, you know, kind of aliens. We just don't see things Mm -hmm. the same way. You know, we we talk and say and do it, you know, we those social niceties we are not good at. That's so funny because I I used to refer to myself as like feeling like an alien all the time because of my own neurodivergencies. With my oldest daughter, I was a new parent, obviously, at the time. But the first thing that I noticed, and I don't know if it's this obvious normally like newborn, but honestly, newborn We were still in the hospital and she literally never cried to indicate that she was hungry. Mm -hmm. So I would wake up because I would hear her sucking her fingers really loudly. And that was the only reason I knew to feed her. And then as she got older, it didn't change. She wouldn't tell me when she was hungry. I had to anticipate her needs. So that's very interesting. I thought, wow, I guess you could even potentially see it even in a newborn. And it's so different because there's autistics whose interoception skills are better. And there's those that even as adults have to set timers to remind themselves to eat and to drink and to do those things that they need to to care for themselves. Actually, my post on Instagram is about this today is that autism is so unique and there is not one thing that makes a person autistic or one thing that makes a person not autistic. It's so interesting as we're watching siblings like you know, I'm sure your, your younger daughter was being monitored. It's so interesting to see that baby start to develop at one month and two months and three months. And those that have autism, even like with the self-stim behaviors, you see them 
you know, every baby is going to flap their hands. Every baby is going to suck and chew. But it's so different watching a neurotypical child who is flapping and then stops or the autistic child who's flapping and then becomes consumed by their own flapping and tunes everything else out or is sucking on really bizarre things. You know, they're sucking (laughs) on your thigh and your, you know, your neck and the parts of the body that a neurotypical baby wouldn't do. So, yeah, you can see it. Not that you would diagnose a six month old, but you can start to see those signs even that young. That's so interesting. You probably may be aware of the debate that's going on in the autism community about (laughs) ABA therapy. I feel like it's really hard to be involved in ABA and not know about that. (laughs) So what are your thoughts on the debate? Just for the audience, for clarification, there's an ongoing debate on whether or not ABA is considered abuse with a lot of people saying it is and others saying it's not. So what are your thoughts on that? We have to think of it like a pendulum. And we have to think about where ABA started. So again, let's go back to the 1940s, the 1950s, where a child or an adult that had any type of significant disability was institutionalized or worse. I mean, there, there, were, there were countries that euthanized individuals that had severe autism. There were individuals you know, that had cognitive disabilities that were euthanized. So you know, being institutionalized was better than that. Again, we're looking at these 1940s, 1950s, 1960s, where these researchers are trying to change that narrative and deinstitutionalize children and say, we don't have to put them in institutions. We can keep them at home and look what we can do. Now, if we start talking about Lovas and we start talking about, should he have been criminalized? Yes. I mean, he, he was shocking children. Is that is that terrible? Yes. But so is euthanizing them. Now, I'm not saying that that justifies it. It's terrible and it's awful, but we have to put it into perspective of what that time was and where we were. And then look at that history of ABA and what the 1960s were, the 1970s, the 1980s. And still, when a child in the 1970s and 80s had autism, they would get sent to a separate school. They weren't even schooled with their peers. And so what was being done to educate children was a pendulum that's shifting, 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 shifting. And what we were doing, even in the 1990s, like I said, what I saw doing, there was no shock. There was no aversive therapy. In the 1990s, the ABA was you sit in a chair and you say, do this, and they clap their hands, and then they get their little M&M, and they followed a very specific script, and you know the VMAP or the ABLES. And so every single child was being taught the exact same skills, the neurotypical skills in the neurotypical developmental scope and sequence. And it needed to be done that way because all of a sudden we have millions of thousands, millions of children who are getting services and we have to train all of these technicians to be able to do this. And so you need this manualized treatment. I know it sounds like I'm making excuses, but it's just the reality of how something develops. Are things that autistic adults now went through abuse? Yes. So was my mother spanking me with a hairbrush and a paddle. Should my mother be criminalized? No, it was the parenting at the time. Do I have hostility against my mother? No. Did she do that for my siblings? No, they didn't need it. I didn't need it either, but she didn't know how to parent me. We won't get into that, that whole aspect. But when you really understand the development and the times and what people knew and what they understand, you can put that into perspective. And so the 
people whose pendulum is now shifted over and are saying all ABA is abuse and it should be criminalized, they might have been put in situations where they were forced to make eye contact. I have seen it. I mean, I when I was teaching, I got a teaching position in southern Wisconsin. And I went into the classroom and they had, you know what a Riften chair is? It's, a, it's like a little wooden height chair, but for an older child. And you basically buckle the child in. And all of the students were in that. And I left the classroom. It was a two-teacher two situation. I left. I went right to the superintendents. I said, I will not work for you if the children are in those chairs. And so understanding that, you know, okay, it's 1992. This is not acceptable. You know, mm -hmm. yes, they did that in the you know 70s and the 80s. We don't do that anymore. And so people have to understand and think independently and know, yeah, we don't have to lock any child into a chair. We don't have to say, you sit down because I said so. So if we, we swing now 25 years or 40 years, we go into the, you know, the 2020s, what ABA looks like in the majority of ABA programs even here in rural, rural, rural Wisconsin, what they look like are play-based. Is everybody neuroaffirming? No, but there are very few ABA providers who are saying, sit down, and then if the child doesn't sit, tell them to sit. There's very mm -hmm. few who are trying to teach children to... And again, not everybody. I know there are still very bad ABA providers. There are very bad ABA clinics, but ABA itself, not bad. ABA is necessary. And Autism is not a disease. It's not something that needs fixing. It is a different way the brain processes its information, but it is a disability. And when we do not provide intervention, our kids suffer. And so what else is there? And it doesn't have to be the ABA from the 60s or the 70s or the 80s or the 90s. We have to be responsible to say, whoa, let's bring this pendulum. Let's, let's take what we've learned and create ABA that is neuroaffirming, that listen to the voices, listen to the people who are saying, well, for me, this is what it feels like. For me, this is what it feels like. Well, I can't tell when I'm hungry. What is it that we need to do to make it better? And that's what's going to make the difference. And so I think that this debate is important. I think that it is a good thing. We just have to be careful, like everything that's so political, that we don't listen to the extremists and be like, oh, oh, ABA, oh, we got, you can't do that. Because there's truth in all of the criticisms, absolutely 100%, but it's not the truth. Yeah, I totally get that. Because one of the things that we actually talked about recently, and you mentioned this in, in your response, was about disability. And one of the episodes that we just did on our podcast, mm -hmm. like two weeks or so, mm -hmm. was about disability not being a dirty word. Because I honestly, personally, as somebody with disabilities, I find it offensive when people are telling me that I can't call myself disabled. Because when you take away the ability to say like, this is disabling, then you take away like people's empathy and ability to understand that like something's more challenging for you. It's just like a quirk at that point. Well, if you consider it just a quirk, people aren't going to give you like the accommodations and the patience and like all the all the things that you need to like succeed in life. So I think that's been part of the frustrating part of that debate for me. Absolutely. When I was listening to that episode of yours, it's so funny because how we respond to our own disabilities is so different than somebody else that even has the same disability. I'm physically disabled. I had um, some nerve damage from one of my hip replacements. And so I use a walker, but I actually get offended when people try to open a door for me. 
And there's other people who will get offended if somebody doesn't open a door for them. Mm -hmm. Now, I'm happy if somebody asks me if they can open the door for me, but to assume, you know, it's that ableism, to assume that I can't do it, then I get offended, which is ridiculous because I know the person's just being nice and I should feel gratitude. But there's this little thing like, how do you know I'm not able to do that by myself? But that's just ridiculous. And I know I'm being ridiculous even when I do it. And that's what we have to realize is that sometimes our opinions of these things, we get so much on a soapbox and it's like, I'm going to call you ableist because you opened the door for me. And it's like, no, the person was being kind. (laughs) Yeah. You know, that's all. That's all they were doing. But but we can get there. And so this whole disability thing, like, well, we can't call it that. And it's like, well, the word's just going to keep shifting and keep shifting. And then whatever we decide to call it today, and I myself have changed because you get such horrible hate things in your, you know, if you post anything that has one of those yes, words. I am aware of this. Um, <laughs> yeah. And so you have to be, you know, careful to play the the right wording game so you can say what you want to say without offending anyone. But yeah, no, disability is definitely not a four letter word. Yeah, that's what I refuse to like let people take away because I feel like that is so important. We have an entire act with the name in it. So <laughs> and it's we, a really, we... really important one. It's a really important law. Like, yeah, people wouldn't get services without it. Exactly. So let me switch gears a little bit here. And I wanted to ask you, because I'm trying to think from the perspective of my listeners who are primarily parents of autistic children or parents who suspect their child might be autistic. Mm -hmm. And one of the questions that I usually get is, what are some typical autism red flags that parents should be on the lookout for? And I think you might be better at actually answering that than I could. (laughs) Yeah. And and actually, if if anybody wants to follow me, I, I don't know why I wrote this today, but actually my post today, I do have a whole list of them in the description in my post. It's brody.the.lion. I'm sure you'll you'll say it later on Instagram. But the, the ones that I like to highlight, the, the signs that I like to talk about are typically the ones that are not on a lot of the other lists. And so it's going to be using the adult as a tool. So it's taking that parent's hand and putting it on the object to open instead of giving it to the parent to open or pushing the parent to something or pulling the parent, not like a top they're pulling the parent because they're excited, but that pushing and pulling, using that adult as a tool, putting their hand onto the door to open it. And it's again, it's not about the lack of eye contact. There's no communication. It's just using that adult as a tool. And adults are not recognizing that that's happening. And and one of the things, you know, the benefits of being old is that you <laughs> see, well, seriously, though, you see, you know, you, you'll find out in a couple decades, it as you see decade after decade pass and generations change, the world is a different place and everybody's social interactions are changing because they're sitting with their phones and they're in waiting rooms and they're texting and they're texting their kids dinner. It's time for dinner. They're not communicating the same way. And so it's going to be interesting to see how that affects autism because I'm already seeing it some in the interactions. We're talking about a, about communicating in a different way. This isn't that. This is, you know, using as a tool. The sensory sensitivities and excesses to sensory is something that I think a lot of parents sometimes miss. They think their kid is just being an extra picky eater. Oh, all kids only want chicken nuggets and fries. But it goes beyond picky eating. It is about that need for sameness. That picky eating is so much about I can't have certain textures and I can't have, you know, I need to have it this brand because I know it's going to be the same. The child can't 
articulate that, of course. But I mean, there's so many. If we look at that profile of autistic kids and what they don't eat or what they eat too much of, they'll only have milk or no milk at all. You know, no meats. You know, we'll eat these very, very few vegetables. But the profile is so narrow about that selective eating and that restrictive eating. The repetitive behaviors are one that can be something that is tricky, especially if we're talking about girls, because gender really, and I don't want to get into a big debate about gender, because of course there are people that have XY chromosomes and people that have, you know, XX chromosomes that women, girls in general are typically more nurturing. So there is this difference as we're playing, not that there aren't girls that don't love cars and boys that don't love playing with dolls, because of course there are, but so many autistic girls are missed because they nurture the baby and they feed the baby and they give the baby, oh, well, see, she can't be autistic because she engages in pretend play. But it's so different watching a toddler who is only taking that bottle and putting it to the baby's mouth and doing this little play versus really engaging in in play. And the way so many autistic kids interact with toys and with plays is just so different. And, and I'm, I'm, I'm all over the place here. I'm sorry. But that repetitive play. And so on the surface, it's going to be lining things up, pressing buttons, that repetitive dumping. And your audience is thinking, well, what age are we talking about? Because the behavior that is appropriate for a 12-month-old versus a 15-month-old versus an 18-month-old. And so when you look at this list, it's really hard to be able to highlight what are those signs. But I think that social interaction, watching that child when you're singing the itsy bitsy spider and you pause, are they filling in that word that is missing? How are they requesting their snacks? Are they, again, using you as a tool? Are they bringing it to you? Are they pointing? Are they showing things? Are they giving things? There's so much about that interaction with the parent and with those siblings. My my best recommendation is go to my post where I have them all listed in a very concise way where it was not <laughs> concise, the answer that I just gave. I also wanted to ask you because there are really long wait lists, as we mentioned earlier. And I was wondering, is there anything that you think parents can do while their kid is on this wait list and they have to wait like a year or two before they get seen for they, a they, diagnosis? Yeah, there, there, there shouldn't be a wait list. So if you're on a wait list, then go look somewhere else. Because like I said, I mean, I, I don't make anybody wait more than two weeks maximum. And I know that I can't be alone. And so those wait lists are at those big clinics. They're going to be the well-known, you know, that maybe what's in their insurance company. There are small private clinical psychologists or developmental pediatricians that are working independently. And so if you get out of the system that you're in, especially we're talking mental health, so mental health is is different and depending on what insurance most most little independent practitioners that have, you know, a shingle outside are going to be able to do that that diagnosis. And a lot of providers that are doing the therapy also do diagnosing. Like when I started and was a therapy provider, I didn't diagnose because I didn't want to diagnose a child and then say, okay, now come and see me. You know, yeah, that was that. very, yeah, very unethical because I'm not going to diagnose somebody and then say, and so I diagnosed you with autism so that now you have to come in, you know, get treated by me. But because the clinics that were doing that diagnosing the wait lists were getting so long, ethically, I just had to do it. And so when I give a diagnosis, I say, you know, your child has autism, 
there are times I recommend ABA therapy. There are times I don't recommend ABA therapy. There are times I recommend two hours a week of therapy. There's times I recommend 30 or 40 hours a week. It is different for every single child. And I always am going to give a list of the best providers for that child. Sometimes I'm going to give five different providers. We don't have that many. We're in a small area. <laughs> Sometimes I'm, I'm only going to give two because of the child's age or where the child resides. And I know these are the companies that work in their area or work with that child's school. But if I put my name on the on the list, I put my name on the list at the bottom, but sometimes I don't even put our own our own agency on that list. And so nobody should wait and nobody should wait a year. And so how do you find somebody? You have to dig. But you look to see, you go and you do your Google search and you look to see in your area who are the ABA providers and then ask that person who does the diagnosing. Okay. I never thought to do that through an ABA facility. I had always assumed they were just therapy. I didn't realize that you could get resources for diagnoses there as well. Each state is going to be different. Um, mm -hmm. But like in Wisconsin, we didn't license behavior analysts until five years ago, six years ago. Ah. Uh, it's very new. So prior to that, the reason I have a PhD in clinical psychology isn't because I was interested in clinical psychology. It's because that's the degree that was required, the license that was required to be an ABA provider in the 1990s. And because BCBAs were still new. So a BCBA cannot diagnose autism, but most clinics that do ABA, now it could be changing, but most are going to have a PhD level clinical psychologist or or possibly a PhD person that needed things to do diagnosing, you have to get referrals somewhere. Even here in Mayo Clinic, you think how big Mayo Clinic is, they do not do autism testing. We have one big clinic. We only have three people that do diagnosing in a seven, eight county area here. Wow. Mm -hmm. Okay. So then let's say that a parent was able to get that diagnosis. At the beginning, as you're aware, there's going to be this kind of like informational onslaught that parents go through. And that's from information that you get from the doctor diagnosing, then information that you get from the autism community online, you get a whole bunch of conflicting information, and it's definitely overwhelming. So what would be your piece of advice for parents who just got that diagnosis? I want everyone to meet me. Um, <laughs> no, I, I overwhelm people obviously way too much. You can tell by, by, by what I'm doing. But, but I try so hard to make sure parents have those, those resources. And it is essential to ask questions that help you to determine that the person that you're talking to is giving you accurate information. What is that person's goal in telling me that my child needs X, Y, and Z? Because if you're coming to me, the reason I said that I, I, you want to talk to me, because I have no ulterior motive other than to educate you so you can be the best parent that you can be to provide the best path for your child. And whether you get that from me I don't care. You know, you don't have to come to me. And that's what you want is somebody that is not trying to sell you on their company, but somebody that is trying to just help you to navigate this path. Asking some key questions. And, and again, this is a little tricky question because of I don't know the age of the child and I don't know who this person is that they're asking. Let's say it's somebody that's saying, all right, you need to go and get you know, ABA therapy. But if it's not the person that's doing the ABA therapy, that person's not going to be able to answer any questions for you. 
they're not going to actually have enough information. And so if they're in this big clinic and it's just doing diagnosing and they actually aren't in the field doing ABA, they might not be able to answer all of those questions for you. Because if you're going to be talking to an ABA provider, you want to ask that person or an OT or a speech person or a music therapist or anybody that's going to work with your child, the child's teacher, you want to say, what are you going to do when you tell my child to sit down and they don't listen? And you want to hear their response of how they're going to respond to that. When, you know, my child comes into the room and the toy they were playing with is been being touched by another child and they start to have a meltdown, how do you respond to that? And those are the questions that you have to ask to find out if that person is giving you advice that is meaningful and works for you. Because if it doesn't work for you, even if it's great advice, you want to run the other way direction because it's not going to fit. And it might not fit in your parenting style. My advice be amazing and great, but it's not what you envisioned for your family and your parenting. And just because your child has autism doesn't mean you have to give up what you wanted to be for your parenting and what you wanted for your family. So, I mean, again, I'm all over the place, but that's because it's so specific my goal is to try to help empower parents to be able to know I can ask these questions. I don't have to just sit there. Yeah, there's all this information, but it's too much. Can we reschedule this? Can I have another visit to be able to come back and collect my thoughts and get some ideas and come back and and meet with you? And if the person says no, then you want to get information elsewhere too. And, And so it's all about asking questions and making sure that the information you're you're getting works for your child. It works for you. Basically, play the detective a little bit and do some digging mm-hmm. before you kind of just take something at face value, essentially. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, that makes total sense. Mm-hmm. Um, so I want to pivot here so I can have an opportunity to ask you about what I see all over you here. Oh. Um, <laughs> I want to ask you um, first, what inspired you to pivot into the world of children's books? Because I can see that you have a lot of books there. I do. So actually, the first one I started writing 25 some years ago, it was a long time ago, I went to a birthday party of a child who obviously had autism, whose parents didn't realize he had autism, who shut the door in his uncle's face when his uncle was five minutes late, who gave the gift back to me because he was no longer studying crystals. He had moved on to Egypt who, you know, covered his ears and had a meltdown when everyone started singing happy birthday. All of the typical things that our our wonderful autistic kids do before we realize we need to alter birthday parties to actually make it fun for them. And so on my way home from this party, I I just kind of started writing this because it's just, it breaks my heart every single day when I see these parents who don't know that their child needs these accommodations and who parents would give them to them, would give them everything on a platter if they knew. And so I started writing it and I jotted him down when I, not while I was driving, of course, but, you know, (laughs) jotted it down, threw it in, you know, my journal at the time, what have you. And I mentioned earlier that I'm, I'm disabled. It's living a life, not being able to walk is a very, very difficult thing. And so when you think about, you know, as you get close to retirement and the things that you're going to do is like, what am I going to do with my life when I, you know, when I can't be on the floor and I can't run after kids and I can't do this anymore. And so all of a sudden those, those little notes just kind of, I remembered them. And so I, I, went and I said, I wonder if I still have them. And I dug them out and I did. And so that was the the first book that I, I rewrote and COVID hit at the time. And 
I I had decided that I was going to self-publish them because I wasn't willing to give up any of the creative control to a publisher. Because when you go with a traditional publisher, you sign away your rights and then they could change it and they don't know autism. And I wasn't willing to have them do anything to my characters that wasn't going to be authentic. So I self-published the first one. And I mean, I just started writing at that point and that kind of became my obsession and my little special interest. So I wrote, uh, yeah, I wrote a slew. So we have four published right now. And then our fifth one will be out this fall. That's pretty exciting. That is super awesome. That's always been like a dream of mine too to publish kids books specifically for neurodivergence. So that's really interesting. That's what really piqued my interest. I was like, ah, she's doing this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) And I took a look at those books. I read them to my kids and they loved them. I thought they were super cute. They were well done. I've read some other ones that I feel like are just too wordy or like too dense or like too literal about what autism is that like a kid can't really pick it up and like understand it at their level. But I thought that this series did a good job of that. You just do a good job of making it like kid friendly. I, I do have a master's degree in education. So um, <laughs> I <laughs> have helps. read, it helps a little. I mean, I have read, you know, thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of books. And one of the key things that that so many parents don't even know is that when we read a book to children, we don't have to read the words that are in the book. And a lot of parents don't understand that. And so it's crazy when I work with some of my, especially my my 18-month-olds and my two-year-olds, that age range, they really, really struggle to connect to books. They love the songs. They love looking at books, but the words, the language makes no sense at all. And so everything that we do when we read a book to our littles is interactive. And so we always have material. So if we're reading our Brody the Lion meets the doc, for example, with our doctor, we have our stuffy, our Brody stuffies, and all of our kids have stuffies. And so, you know, we we have our stuffies, we have our doctor kits, we have everything that you're going to see in the book. We have those materials there. And depending on the language that I am reading, the the text in the book is going to be appropriate for a neurotypical four to six-year-old, depending on that child's language level. And so, you know, if you're reading the book to your two-year-old who's autistic, who is nonverbal, we shouldn't be reading those words at all. There should be no words that are being read at all. And it's so interesting because people don't understand that we have to adapt and make accommodations even in that reading. And so we can find one thing. And often when it's with our kids with autism, they're going to dictate what that thing is because I'm going to want them to, you know, like maybe look at the picture where he's looking fearful and I want to talk about scared. But autistic kids don't look at salient information. They're going to see the bubble, you know, that's supposed to be a thought. (laughs) They're going to be like, bubbles! And that's the only (laughs) thing they're going to see. And so then I have to talk about bubbles and we have to use what our kids are looking at. And so we try to to have the pictures on each page, have things that are, are going to draw to the what is salient, but then also be able to be used for so many different levels. And then the back of each books, like the very first one, that birthday book, 
it actually talks about how to read it. And so those different levels of how to read if your child's nonverbal, if they're using short phrases, or if they are able to, to read the whole text. But then each book is different. So the shopping flip book talks about what you should do if your child is having a meltdown, what you should do if you see somebody else's child having a meltdown. And all of those tips, I use my background for creating tips. And the, my editor is my partner, my BCBA, Kim Sattler. And so she edits and also helps me with the parent tips part. But then we also have all of Brody's buddies who are a whole bunch of friends on Instagram and Facebook that have children that are autistic or children with other different um, needs who help me with those tips too. So I'll say, all right, guys, you know, this book is about chopping. Talk to me about the things you like, the things you don't want, what, you know, what's the best. And we work together to to make sure that all of those tips at the at the end of the books are going to hopefully, you know, help a variety of, of families. That is so awesome. I absolutely love them. Before we wrap up, I just want to ask you, what does embracing autism mean to you? It depends on the day. <laughs> it really does, though, because there are, are days that I embrace autism because an autistic person sees the world with such rawness that the superficiality of societal expectations and norms don't matter. And if the entire world could see the world itself as an autistic person did, the world would be a, a truly better place because so much of that superficiality and materialistic and all of those things that don't matter, don't matter to an autistic person. On the, the surface, it's like if we could just all embrace being different and accept that there is no one right way to do things, our world would just I, I just can't. I mean, I'm I'm like about to cry because it, it's. But it also then on the next day, just all that just makes me so angry because I I don't being neurodivergent. I don't understand it. I don't understand how we can't get along. How can we not see that there is no one right way? So to me, embracing autism is is truly about embracing the innate differences and truly accepting those in all of us. I can totally relate. One of my experiences has been that I feel like I'm a really authentic person and that I find that neurodivergent people tend to be really authentic. To me, it's all about embracing authenticity. If the world was a truly, fully authentic place where everybody was their authentic self and said what they meant and did what they said, you know, it would really be a much better place, in my opinion. Yeah, I see. I, I told you we were going to click, Leah. <laughs> 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 so I'm going to uh, wrap up here. But before we go, I want to make sure that my listeners can find you in your books. So uh, go ahead and shout out where where's all your information, social media, sure. where can my listeners find you? Sure. So if, as far as the books go, um, depending on, on where you are in the United States, you can get them on Amazon.com, which could be the cheapest place if you don't have to pay for shipping. Amazon across the, the whole world. So Canada, India, um, UK, wherever has the Amazon books, but all of the retailers have them. Walmart, Barnes and Nobles, the book depository. So anywhere retail, you're going to be able to find them. If you are US, it may be cheaper to get them directly from us because we do a lot of sales. And so that website is www.brodythelion.com. No spaces or dots, just brodythelion.com. My Instagram handle is brody.the.lion. And the Facebook is brodythelion.com. 
Ooh, at one, I get I get confused with all of those. <laughs> um, but you can find most if you go to the website, the brodythelion.com or the Instagram, you'll be able to get most of them. But if you just Google Brody the Lion, you should be able to to find it pretty, pretty easily. And Kristen, she was also so nice to provide you all with a discount code. Um, that is Brody's Buddies. Awesome. Oh, yeah. Great. <laughs> so if anybody is interested, I would highly recommend these books. They're super cute and super well done, in my opinion. Please make sure mm-hmm. to follow and like her pages and keep up with what she's doing. I'm interested to see that post that you're talking about. Thank you so much for being part of the Embracing Autism podcast. Uh-huh. Hopefully we'll catch up again in the future. Sounds great. Thank you so much, Leah. Thank you. This has been the audio from the Embracing Autism podcast live stream series. Please check out our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash at Autism Wish to catch these shows live. Otherwise, stick around next week for our next episode. This is Embracing Autism.